Hello and welcome to the RI Science Podcast. In this episode, we learn all about proton beam therapy from physicist Simon Jolly. How can particle accelerators be used to help cure cancer? This talk was recorded from our theatre at the Royal Institution on the 12th of October 2018. You can get tickets for our upcoming talks and live streams by heading to rigb.org. And please remember to leave this episode a rating and a review to let us know what you think and to help other people discover the podcast. Now, over to the theatre. Good evening, everyone. It's great to see so many of you here. My background is in particle physics, in high energy physics. What I want to talk to you about this evening is really the crossover between the pure research that we do in high energy physics and the application that that has to cancer treatment. There is a joke, a small joke in the title when I say how the Large Hadron Collider cures cancer. I'm hoping that some of you will have guessed that the Large Hadron Collider does not actually cure cancer. However, there is some seriousness to that statement and as we go along, I'll introduce you to why. However, like any good physicist, I should start talking about things that I don't understand, which in this case means medicine. One of the fascinating things for me when moving from pure high-energy physics research to starting to look into the, the medical side is understanding how cells divide and replicate and all of the different mechanisms that contribute to cell division. Now, I'm going to introduce a few terms as we go along. Uh, we're going to start off with the Greek. The most important process to start off with is called mitosis. What that means is cell division. I'm hoping that most of you will have seen images of cells dividing, so the nucleus inside a cell starts off by unfolding all of the DNA strands inside that nucleus, and then they separate out into two pairs. And then each one of those two halves picks up another half to form two independent nuclei. And then the two separate out, the nuclei separate out, form a new sheath, and then the cells divide. And that way you go from one cell to, to, to two cells. The first part is the, the DNA separation. So right in the middle, all those bright strands that you can see, that's the DNA inside the cell. That's the nucleus dividing. Once the nucleus is divided, then you end up with a separation of those two parts and you end up with two new cells. Now the other Greek term that's appropriate to what we're going to talk about this evening is apoptosis. Something that I found fascinating when learning about the life cycle of cells in the body is that every single cell in the body has a pre-programmed lifespan. And it depends upon the function of that cell as to how long it lives. And you go from the very short, so white blood cells will live less than a day, all the way up to egg cells and neurons which will hopefully last your entire life. The key thing about cells is that not only do they know how long they should live, but they know when they should die. They know when they should self-destruct. If a cell becomes uh, damaged, if it understands that it has too much damage to function properly, then this process called apoptosis kicks in. And that means that a cell, in a very ordered way, will package itself up 
and hand off parts of itself to surrounding cells. So the raw material still gets used, but the cell recognizes that it is no longer optimal for it to be alive in order for the organism to stay alive. The problem with cancer is that those two processes start to run out of control. Within a cell, you have two sets of genes that regulate how a cell divides and how often it divides. A cell does not spend most of its life cycle dividing. It spends most of its life cycle actually doing what it's supposed to do. The genes that regulate how often a cell divides are called oncogenes, or actually, more accurately, proto-oncogenes. So the proto-oncogenes in a cell are giving out the signal to divide and replicate. There's a balance in a healthy cell. On the other hand, you have tumor suppressor genes. And what a tumor suppressor gene is doing is essentially saying, calm down, just let's not do this all the time. When you have those two in balance, then a cell will spend something like one-tenth, one-twentieth of its life cycle dividing, and the rest going about its business. The problem is when those genes start to accumulate errors. So if you imagine that that proto-oncogene takes some damage and starts to put out the signal that says divide, 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 all the time, that becomes accelerated. The cell division then goes into overdrive. Then add in another error into the tumor suppressor gene so it stops functioning properly. So now you have this accelerated instruction to grow and this suppressed instruction to just rest. Now if you have a healthy cell with those errors, apoptosis should kick in. The cell should say, ah, okay, too many errors. So now I need to self-destruct. If the apoptosis mechanism uh, starts accumulating errors, now you have a cell that is going into uncontrollable replication and has no self-destruct mechanism, and the cell becomes immortal, and now starts to transmit these errors to surrounding cells, and that is cancer. So when you look at cancer growth and cancer evolution, what you see is this accelerated, uncontrollable growth. So cells are now dividing and dividing and dividing all the time. They're spending their entire life cycle just growing. And because they pull in a blood supply, they need resources, they start to suck resources out of the rest of the body. They grow their own blood supply. If you have a look at a tumor, it's got this spider's web of uh, blood vessels that run through it. And now, because it's connected to the blood supply, those cancer cells can now spread out through the, the bloodstream. And that's when we have what are called metastases that spread, and that's when you get malignancies. So that's the start of the story. But what I want to spend more of the time talking about is how we treat it. Now, there are three main ways of treating cancer. Radiotherapy, chemotherapy, and surgery. The irony is, if you think about something, somebody who's being treated for cancer, the first thing you tend to think about is hair falling out, which is a result of the chemotherapy. And actually, chemotherapy is the least effective of those three methods. The most important is surgery. An oncologist once said to me, if you want to cure cancer, become a surgeon. If you can excise that tumour cleanly, that is much better than other methods. However, the next one down on the list is radiotherapy. 
And in about 40% of cases, it's radiotherapy that is the most important part of the, the, the treatment. The way that radiotherapy works is by irradiating those same DNA strands. What you're trying to do is to break the DNA strands within a cell in order to stop it dividing. If a cell is undergoing cell division and you start to get these DNA strands separating and you shatter those DNA strands at that point, then the cell will stop dividing. And you can actually stimulate that apoptosis process by making uh, damage, making breaks to those DNA strands. If you make enough of them, even with a cancerous cell, apoptosis still kicks in and the cell will fall apart and die. The way you do that is with x-rays. If you irradiate cells with x-rays, then every cell from one of those x-rays will collide with the atoms in that cell and knock out some of the electrons that form the bonds within that DNA strand and break that DNA strand. If you shoot x-ray beams in from multiple directions, then you can do more damage where those beams cross over. And that's really the principle behind radiotherapy. Now, I'm hoping that most people in the audience have not seen the inside of a radiotherapy treatment room. This is what one looks like. In the middle there is a gantry. Now, the patient lies on that black couch, and the X-ray beam then gets emitted from all directions around the patient. That gantry emits an X-ray beam that rotates all the way around the patient. So what you actually do is deliver beams from 360 degrees. So you control the size of that beam and the shape of that beam. And that x-ray beam then travels all the way through the body. But you add up to do most damage where you want it, where the tumour is. In order to make x-rays, you need a particle accelerator. On the left-hand side of that picture is a source of electrons, so subatomic particles. You get electrons by taking a metal and you heat it. And when you heat it, those electrons start to vibrate and it's easier with a voltage to be able to pull them off. What you then do is you accelerate those electrons with a voltage. So on the left-hand side, you've got electrons that have just boiled off a metal and then you accelerate them all the way down that particle accelerator uh, until they're up to the energy that you want. And we measure that energy in electron volts. So if we've got a 6 megavolt potential difference, that's the voltage between the start and the end, then our electrons are going to gain 6 mega electron volts of energy. Now, you don't treat the patient with electrons. You treat them with x-rays. So what you do is you take that beam of electrons and then you actually turn it back on itself. You make sure that by sending it round a curve, you filter out those that aren't at exactly the right energy that you want. And then after it's been round that bend, you slam it into a target, and when it hits that target, it stimulates X-ray emission. And it's those X-rays that then get directed at the patient and are used for the treatment. And then after you've generated the X-rays, you have all of these different collimators that are used to shape the size of the beam, so the, the beam is exactly the right size for the, for the tumour. Now, when you put those x-rays into the patient, this is what the dose deposition looks like. Now, what you see on the right are th is not a 360-degree sweep, but three fixed beams. So that's actually for prostate treatment. So you've got three beams, two of which are coming in either side of the pelvis, and one of which is coming in front to back. And you're trying to irradiate the area 
right in the, the, the centre of the, the pelvis. And the, the, the area that you're trying to irradiate is in green, so that's the area of highest dose. Now, on the left, you've got uh, non-small cell lung cancer. There, it's a much more complex shape. So there, you actually have this continuous 360-degree sweep. And inside that green contour, that's the area you're trying to irradiate. By bringing beams in from multiple directions, you're doing most of the damage inside that uh, area, even though the x-rays are passing straight through the body. But the downside is that x-rays pass straight through the body. Otherwise, we wouldn't have x-rays. The problem with treatment is that x-rays pass all the way through the body, so they're not stopping where the tumour is. They're doing damage all the way through. Wouldn't it be great if we had another way of delivering radiation right where we want it? And this is where proton therapy comes in. What you can see here is dose deposition. So that means damage, how much damage you're doing as these beams of radiation pass through the body. Now the photon line, the x-rays, you've got a peak that's a few centimetres in. So that's where you get most of the damage, and then you get this drop-off as it passes through the body. So anything that's deeper than three centimetres is further away from where you do most of the damage. However, if you use protons, which come from subatomic nuclei, the nucleus of a hydrogen atom, protons are heavy and they're charged. And rather than passing straight through and then every so often making a collision with an electron, which is what X-rays do, this big fat proton will rattle. Only slightly, it will see all of the electrons as it's passing through all of the tissue in the body. And you get these little glancing collisions, bump, 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 as it's going through. But what's happening is each time it's glancing across one of these electrons, it's slowing down just a little bit, just a little bit of energy loss and a little bit. As it gets slower, it loses more energy, which means it gets slower, which means it loses more energy, which means it gets slower, which means it loses more energy. To the point where you get this massive deceleration, it comes to a screeching halt. And that means that it does most of its damage right at the end of its path. And that spike we call the Bragg Peak. And it's at that point that you're doing most of the damage inside the tumour. And we can control that distance very precisely, so long as we know what the energy loss is, in other words, what the density is of the tissue that it's passing through, we can control that distance very accurately. Now, you don't just want to use one energy when you're treating, you want to be able to send the beam in across the entire tumour. Now, by changing the energy of that beam, you can scan it backwards and forwards. You can pick very precisely where you want that energy to be deposited. And this is a proton beam, again, that's being deposited into a big block of solid scintillator. And you can see, as we change the energy, it scans backwards and forwards. So we know precisely where we're going to deposit most of that radiation dose. Now, if you look at the effect of that on treatment, this is the same non-small cell lung cancer treatment plan that I showed you earlier. So on the left-hand side, you've got X-ray radiotherapy. On the right, you've got proton beam therapy. You're trying to deliver most of the dose to the same region, to the cancerous cells within the lung. So because you have this precise stop with the Bragg peak, that allows you to bring the area of highest dose deposition much more closely around the contour of the tumours.
the, the, the tumour, what we call conformal. It conforms to the area that we want to treat. Another example is with cancer called medulloblastoma. Now, medulloblastoma grows in the base of the skull. The problem with medulloblastoma is that it will metastasize out and around the cerebrospinal fluid. So what you have to do when you treat it is you resect the tumor. You have to take it out from the, the, the skull base. But once you've done so, you then have to irradiate the entire cerebrospinal volume. So all around the brain and in all the way down the spinal column. Now, if you look at the tube, what you see on the bottom is what you would do with what's called a stereotactic x-ray treatment. So a single direction, not this 360-degree sweep. And you can see that if you're shooting from the back and having to irradiate the spinal column, all of those x-rays are coming come straight through the chest. If you're doing the same thing with protons, irradiating from one direction, then you get much less dose deposition to the rest of the body. The caveat to that is that, by and large, we don't do single-field stereotactic treatment with, with x-rays. So actually, the dose is not quite as high for x-rays with, with modern treatment. But it's the reason why, with our new proton therapies, that I'll tell you about as we go along, we have medulloblastoma as one of the indications that we're going to be treating. So how do we deliver this dose deposition? It's not like x-rays where you take a big beam. What you actually do is take what's called a pencil beam. So the beam is much smaller than the size of the tumour. Now, because it's a proton beam, you can steer it. So you scan it backwards and forwards across the volume of the tumour. You scan one slice. Now, that means that the Bragg peak is only going a certain depth. But then you change the energy and scan a slightly shallower layer and change the energy, and scan again, and change the energy. And in that way, you scan across the entire volume of the tumour. This is an actual treatment plan. So you've got two images up there. Now, on the left-hand side is the individual pencil beam. We call it pencil beam scanning because you're scanning a pencil-sized beam of, of protons. In the bottom left of that x-ray, that's again, that's a slice through the, the, the middle of the chest, you have a lung tumour. So you're trying to scan across that entire volume. What you've got on the right is the cumulative dose distribution. So as you scan from the back to the front, you add up to deliver all of the dose that you want in the place that you want it to. As we bring that beam in, none of that dose gets deposited just beyond the tumour. At least that's the ideal. So you're avoiding depositing dose into the heart and the spinal cord, in some cases of a growing child which is why we try and use proton beam therapy more often in children, because you then spare growing organs. Now, I started off by saying that I was telling a joke by saying how the Large Hadron Collider cures cancer. But why? Why introduce the Large Hadron Collider in the first place? Now, what you can't do is use an accelerator of that size and power for the kind of cancer treatment that I'm introducing you. Uh, and to prove it, um, let me introduce you to Anatoly Bogorsky. Uh, Anatoly Bogorsky is a Russian physicist who was working in Protvino in the 1970s. Uh, and the synchrotron, the accelerator that he was working on, is something like a thousand times less powerful than the Large Hadron Collider. Uh, he was trying to repair it one day Unfortunately, the safety systems weren't working, and they switched the beam on with his head in the way. 
the thing that I'm curious about is looking at the beam path, I'm pretty sure he was trying to find it by eye. <laughs> Other than the grand mal epilepsy and the hearing loss in one ear, he survived, completed his PhD, and I believe is still alive. If you look him up on Wikipedia, it says, other than all of these health issues, he was fine. So, <laughs> other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how's the play? However, all of the technology that we now use for proton beam therapy has come from pure high-energy physics research. So when we were designing and building these machines, we had no idea that this was what they were going to become. Although, actually, there's a caveat to that, because the first idea for proton beam therapy came from Robert Wilson in the US in 1946, which was pretty soon after the first invention of the particle accelerators. So some people had an idea that maybe you could use this technology for cancer treatment. But if you look at a modern proton beam therapy center, you see features that are very similar to the enormous research machines that we also build. This is one of the world's leading research centers where they also carry out groundbreaking treatment at Heidelberg in Germany. And Heidelberg, they don't only treat with protons, they also treat with carbon ions. If you look at the layout of this, it looks very similar to the accelerator chain that you have at CERN that feeds into the Large Hadron Collider. So right at the start, you've got an ion source. You've got that insignificant bottle of hydrogen gas or CO2 if you want to make carbon beams. You've got a linear accelerator. You have an accelerator ring. You have a synchrotron. Rather than it being 27 kilometers in circumference like the Large Hadron Collider, these are only about 20 meters. So that accelerates those protons up to the energy that you need. Then you have beam transport lines, so magnets that allow you to focus and steer those protons or carbon ions and send them where you want them to go. At this point, the technology starts to diverge a little bit. Because at a certain point, it's no longer just a particle accelerator for its own sake. You have to treat a patient. And at the end of these beam lines, now you have treatment rooms. And you start to see things that look much closer to the radiotherapy treatment room. So in this case, you have a single fixed beam line that's coming in through the wall. And then the patient on the same robotic couch, instead of that couch being mounted to the floor, it's actually on a robotic arm, so you can position the patient wherever you want them. That C section, that's actually a CT scanner. So that allows you to take X-ray images all the way around the patient. The big difference between X-ray radiotherapy and particle accelerators is how you deliver the beam from all directions around the patient. The gantry in proton and carbon therapy is much bigger than it is in X-ray radiotherapy. And a problem like this does not exist in pure particle physics, where you have to mount your accelerator beam line to an enormous rotating structure that allows you to deliver the beam from any angle to the patient and with millimeter precision so you get the beam exactly where you want it. At the end of this gantry, you have the treatment room, what's called the nozzle. That's where the beam comes out. Now, if you're me and you walk into a treatment room, the disappointment is palpable that all of the kit, all of the accelerator technology is hidden. Most patients don't seem to share that opinion. <laughs> So when you walk into a treatment room, what you actually see is the nozzle and then nice, calming, white plastic panelling 
that hides you from all of the technology behind the wall. Some of that technology is pretty big. Not Large Hadron Collider big, but big in a different way. This is the gantry at Heidelberg. So the gantry needs to hold part of the accelerator that brings the beam in and then takes it up to the ceiling and then back down again to the patient. The beam line on that gantry is kind of shaped like a question mark, so it rotates all the way around the patient. Because of the size of the magnets that you have as part of that accelerating structure, these devices are big. The smallest gantries are about 100, 150 tons. The Heidelberg gantry, which is the biggest in the world, is 600 tons, uh, 22 meters long, 13 meters in diameter, so about the same length as an articulated lorry. And what's the height of this lecture theater? What would you say, seven meters, maybe eight? So twice the height of this lecture theater. And that entire structure has to rotate around the patient with millimeter precision. So this is where things start to get hard. Particle physics is easy. It's the wetware at the end that makes things difficult. It's the people. On that gantry, you're not actually accelerating the beam. All you're doing is steering it. But you have to guide those protons so that they arrive at the patient at the right place at the right time. Now, to give you another sense of scale about how big these are, this is a view of the gantry with one of the operators standing underneath it. Uh, because he's German, he's bigger than average, he's probably taller than I am. But you get a sense of how big this machinery is. That also gives you some idea of why proton therapy is not routine. It's very large technology, and it's useful in specific cases where you really get the benefit of this very tight dose distribution. But when you do, and you can deliver the beam to the patient, you see real advantages. Now, I mentioned earlier that we have a proton therapy center in the UK. It's actually the first one in the world based in a hospital at, at, at Clatterbridge. But we are building two new ones within the NHS. One is at the Christie Hospital in Manchester. The other one is at UCLH in London. If anybody goes to visit UCLH, you will see an enormous great building site. And that building site is the new proton beam therapy center, what we call phase four. The Christie is almost ready. They are probably going to be treating their first patients this year. So fingers crossed by the end of this year, we will be treating patients with the first high energy centers on the NHS in the UK. The difference with Clatterbridge is that the beam energy from Clatterbridge is low energy. It's only 60 mega electron volts, which means the proton beam travels about three centimeters, which is deep enough to go to the back of the eye. So they treat eye tumors. And because they've been going about 30 years, they are a world-renowned center of expertise for that treatment. But that's all they can do. What we're doing at the Christie and at UCLH is delivering high energy treatments, so anywhere in the body. This is what the UCLH site looks like. If you want to find University College London Hospital from a great distance, there are two easy ways. One of which is look for the BT Tower, which is a couple of blocks away. The other way is if you can find the large green and white glass building that's the um, tower, uh, the main building at UCLH, that's the way you find it. 
Now, there is a lot of cancer care that goes on at UCLH, but the part that I'm interested in is the proton beam therapy. If you look at the site, it's pretty much slap bang in the centre of London. That X-shaped building that you can see just past that red region, that's the cruciform building. So that's the original University College Hospital building. That is mid-1800s that was established. They only stopped treating patients there about 10, 15 years ago when they built the new building. But right next door, we have the new proton beam therapy centre site. Right next door to that is Tottenham Court Road. So you do at least have good rail access with Euston and King's Cross and Warren Street right next door. But let's just say it's not the best place to build a very large complex building. The site is somewhat compact. Now remember that I said how big the gantries were. That big space right at the bottom, that's for the gantries. The proton therapy part is actually all below ground. So from minus two to minus five, it's all the way down in the basement. What you get above that is um, conventional hospital, there's a new haematology, oncology unit that's going in there. Uh, there are um, operating theatres, consulting rooms. But if you look at a slice through the building, you start to see how compressed, how we had to squeeze in all of these gantries into the building. All of this way down in the basement. So the accelerator that we have is actually smaller still than the Heidelberg one. It's called a cyclotron. It's more compact than the, the bigger synchrotron. Then you need to take the beam out of the cyclotron. And remember I said that as you curve the beam round corners, you actually select the energy that you want. Faster particles don't bend so much, slower particles bend too much. So you can use that to choose the energy that you want. That beam of protons then gets distributed to the gantries. And there are four of them at UCLH. So there are four treatment rooms. And inside each one of those treatment rooms is where we will deliver beams to the patient. Now, that cyclotron is about two and a half metres across, so not much different from the size of this desk. So much more compact than the technology that I've been showing you. The big part is not the accelerator, and the hard part is not the accelerator. It's not difficult to get protons up to the right energy. It's difficult to get them where you want them to go. It's the gantry. It's delivering them to the patient. So to start off with, you've got the particle accelerator. This is the cyclotron. The beam gets extracted from the cyclotron and then travels down the beam transport line. And as it does so, you steer and you focus with all of those magnets. And once the beam is at the right energy, going in the right direction, then you can pull it off and steer it into each of the treatment rooms. And so you have these four gantries, all of which are set in concrete, all buried deep below the ground. All of this sits about four storeys below ground. Above that, you have the rest of the building, all of which is sitting right next door to Tottenham Court Road, about two minutes' walk from Warren Street Station. The UCLH site is pretty big. The hole that was excavated is enough to take the Royal Albert Hall. The pilings that you use, the concrete pillars to hold the building upright, go 90 metres down into the ground. That's the same height as Big Ben. They had to take all of the earth, 80,000 cubic metres of earth, had to be taken away and put somewhere. I think it all got dumped behind King's Cross. You need enough workmen and enough trucks to do that. When they were digging the site, there was one truck every three minutes that was arriving, being filled and leaving. So the logistics of that is not easy. Because of the complexity of that site, 
The building is going to open in 2020, so a few years after the Christie. So that's the facility. But let's bring things back to the start. Why build it? What's the purpose of treating with proton beam therapy? Let me introduce you to Snowdrop. So in that picture, I think Snowy is four years old. Uh, that's her little sister, Posy, who's doing her best morning look. Now, Snowy had a tumour around her eye. It grew quickly. The picture that you can see in the top right, that was just before she had surgery. And that, I think, is about four weeks after the first symptoms were noticed. So that's pretty rapid. Fortunately, what you see in the bottom right is post-surgery. So successful resection of a tumour. The particular cancer is called embryonal rhabdomyosarcoma. And rhabdomyosarcoma grows in the connective tissue of the body. It's quite difficult to see in that post-surgical picture on the left which eye it was that had the surgery. And uh, Snowy and Posey seem to be reasonably happy about the, the outcome. If you look at the post-operative MRI, you can see visually there's no evidence of the cancer remaining. The difficulty is you have to mop up what you can't see. You have to deliver radiation therapy in order to make sure that there is no residual cancer around the site where you've taken the tumour out. That means, for children, the best option is proton beam therapy. And what Snowy had, because we don't have proton therapy in the UK to treat children as yet, she was sent to the US to Jacksonville. Now, rather than me telling you about it, I think it's probably better to hear it from the horse's mouth. So let me invite down Michael, Neville, and Snowdrop. So tell us the story. Uh, so it's, it was almost a year ago to the day, a, a year and three weeks, that um, our typically chaotic family life was... Um, just torn to shreds, quite honestly, with the diagnosis of, of uh, RMS, rhabdomyosarcoma. Um, surgery went well, and um, chemotherapy began at Southampton. Um, a, few, a few months into chemotherapy, we were... Radiotherapy came up, and uh, I think we are, we, are the human, we are the human side of this evening. Um, and uh, it was important for us to understand the science, uh, that's where Simon came in and, and our relationship, we, we wanted to understand the apoptosis, the, the Bragg peak and, and such, and uh, Simon was incredibly supportive there. Um, the proton beam and our conclusions made the decision much easier for us. I think with, with conventional radiotherapy, um, it would have been a very difficult decision given Snowy's age um, and the site of the tumour. But proton beam as I say, made that decision much easier. It was targeted. The long-term outcomes were, were significantly improved by proton beam. And importantly, the, the lasting damage um, and the side effects associated with radiotherapy were, were minimal. So proton beam offered us great hope and uh, Florida turned out to be a, a, a very a wonderful experience for us, really. The, uh, the care and the 
the attention to detail at, at the University of Florida was, was incredible. Um, still quite incredible, a, a blur the last year, as I'm sure you can, you can imagine. But um, to, to see Snowy go off to that um, shiny white plastic room, <laughs> which in my eyes is still very scary, but um, uh, to see her to go off there every day for, for 20 consecutive days was quite something on her own with no no sedation and to lie there whilst the uh, the beam was um, given was was quite something and she's she's an absolute hero as, as you can imagine. We um, we concluded treatment uh, in late May. Uh, baseline scans at the end of that treatment were clear, and we we're, um, we're 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 delighted to be able to stand here and, and say that the scans from the last month, uh, three four months on, are also showing um, no signs of no signs of cancer. So. Uh, on we go. Jacksonville was a very positive experience. They've clearly got it right how they look after the patients and uh, it's just incredible and exciting to see this modern wonder as it absolutely is on our doorstep here and um, that you know people like Snowy will, will be able to, will be able to um, undergo this treatment in a, in, a more convenient, in a more convenient way. So tell us about the triathlons. So we all cope in, with these things in different ways, as, as you can imagine. And, and uh, as as a as someone who enjoys exercise, I I had I had to find my way out, um, quite honestly, in those first few days. So uh, diagnosis and the plan was made. And on that first day of treatment, I just decided to to have a little run, a 10k. And then we, we live we, we're extremely fortunate to live on Chichester Harbour, so I went for a swim. Um, and, uh, and then I thought I'd do a triathlon by getting on my bike. Um, and I, I, I made the distances quite deliberate. I made sure it was a, an Olympic distance triathlon. I thought that kind of, you know, a closure on the day would, would give me strength. Um, it was dark, obviously, the girls. It wasn't at a time when, when my family, when the girls were awake. It was, it was approaching midnight. But I, I completed a triathlon on the first day of treatment. And... Um, and the next day, I, I kind of managed to squeeze in another one. And, <laughs> and on it went, um, always with treatment and, and, and the girls absolutely at the centre of what was going on. So it genuinely was at, you know, four o'clock in the morning when I couldn't sleep. Um, it was jumping in the harbour at, 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 you know, dusk or whatever. But um, treatment lasted for 200 days and... Uh, those 200 days saw a triathlon every day, um, which was almost broke me. <laughs> but it, it grew as an incredible campaign, and we've we've raised um, uh, over 50,000 pounds now for for the charities who supported us through it. And um, and more than that, it became a it became a a campaign that brought the community together. Strength in numbers was, was, was no more evident than our, than our community. And there are people who haven't enjoyed the benefits of exercise and, and the great outdoors for some time. So they were out. There were people running all over the village. There were people doing their first ever 5K run. Um, and we, we built an army of supporters who, who helped us through it. And, um, and as I say, the campaign rocks on, um, hoping to support... Uh, young children um, in this in this fight. Michael, thank you for your time. Then let me close by thanking you all for coming. 
um, and encouraging you to check out the website Try Every Day for Snowy. Hopefully, as proton therapy develops uh, in the UK, you'll get more of an insight into the treatment that we do. I hope that most of you get the chance to see it from the outside and not from the inside. It's a great example of how we can take something that seemed like we were just exploring for the sake of it in high energy physics and take it and do something with it. So on that, I will thank you. Oh, thank you very much, Simon. And thank you, Michael, and thank you, Snowy. We have some time for questions now, but before I sort of had it, I see hands going up already. I want to ask, I want to ask one myself. Um, you, you, we saw that um, innocuous-looking cylinder of hydrogen uh, where you get the protons from, but then you said at one point CO2 as well, and on that plot with the Bragg peak, there was also uh, carbon there as well. Can you tell us a bit about that? What, what's, a, where's this, what's a carbon doing? So the reasons why we talk about carbon rather than just protons... Um, the heavier you get, the narrower that Bragg peak becomes. So carbon is 12 times heavier than protons. You have uh, six protons and six neutrons in the nucleus of uh, a carbon atom. What that mass means is that, first of all, those glancing collisions aren't quite so glancing. So the energy gets directed more in the direction that you want it to. The proton beam spreads slightly because it scatters as it goes through. But the most important part is that the Bragg peak becomes much narrower. You get an even tighter dose distribution with carbon than you do with protons. The downside is, as you can see from the pictures of the Heidelberg gantry, you have to work much harder to accelerate carbon than you do with protons. So in one sense, the reason for using carbon is just because you get this tighter dose distribution with carbon ions. But there's a real kicker, and it's something we're just starting to discover. There's something about using carbon ions that stimulates the immune system. So when you irradiate a tumour with any kind of radiotherapy, the immune system is kind of bumped into life a little bit. The problem with cancer, just the one, um, the body doesn't know that there's anything bad because it's part of your own cells. So you've got all of these millions of years of evolution that are dedicated to taking something foreign out of your body and getting rid of it. With cancer, it's part of your own cells, so the immune system never kicks into action. But there's something about irradiating a tumour that seems to wake up the immune system. If you use carbon ions, that effect is greatly enhanced. So you get this much more enhanced immune response. And we're really starting to discover... It's, we're at the very early stages of it. So there's something about using these heavier ions that gives you this enhanced immune response. Now, maybe if we use helium, which is lighter, it's only four times heavier than a proton, we'll get the same effect, but we won't have to spend, expend so much energy getting the, the beam into the patient. But that's really the reason for, for using carbon. We started off thinking, okay, tighter dose, get the dose much closer to where we want it to. But now it's this immune response that's really interesting. Uh, that was absolutely fascinating. Thank you very much for the good talk. Um, two questions. First one, um, do you think this will completely replace radiotherapy because of less peripheral damage to healthy tissue, um, especially the, the high, heavier elements that you were talking about there? And the second question is, that little boy that did have to go abroad for the treatment, why were the NHS so reluctant to let him go if it was a treatment that would have helped him, which uh -huh. your talk implies it would have been? 
if you know. So, in answer to your first question, no, I don't think it will ever replace conventional radiotherapy. It's in certain conditions, like Snowy's, where you get a real advantage. But it's not just a blanket cure. The problem is, is it's that much more expensive than conventional X-ray radiotherapy. Um, in the US, proton therapy has predominantly been used for prostate cancer. Uh, I think 85% of treatment is for prostate. The reason is not because, wow, it's an amazing treatment for prostate, it's because you've got lots of wealthy old white men with good medical insurance. So when you're talking about the business of medicine and you're trying to get as many patients through, you pick the ones that are easy to treat and can pay for it. Now, all of the clinical evidence that we have at the moment shows that protons are no more effective for treating prostate than conventional x-rays. So unfortunately, some of those centers in the US are starting to go bust because their uh, financial models aren't turning out in the way that they expected to. We do a really good job with x-rays. Because of this uh, conformal dose, this 360-degree sweep, we actually do pretty well. The downside with protons is if you know what you're trying to hit and you know exactly where it is, you do better and you do better every time. But if you don't know exactly where it is, imagine that you're treating a lung tumor and you're trying to shoot a beam in from the front. Now, lung tissue is full of air, at least you hope it is. Uh, imagine you don't quite know what the density is. So your beam energy is slightly higher than you thought it was. Now your brag peak is going through your tumor and either into lung tissue or into heart, spine. So getting the dose localization is much more critical with protons and then even more so with heavier ions than it is with x-rays. Because you have this low-dose bath everywhere with x-rays, the dose localization, you can actually move a patient, I think, up to a centimeter in any direction and it doesn't have the detrimental effect that it would do in protons. So the other part is the expense, is that you now need to pay that much more for treatment. When the case was made to the Department of Health about building these proton therapy centers, it had to be on financial grounds. You had to make the economics. Now, if you have young patients, if you have children, you have to think of the side effects of treatment. So if you get better dose like localization, particularly with brain tumors, you're doing less damage to the surrounding tissue. So with brain tumors, you don't end up with motor problems, speech problems. Um, actually, I say you don't end up. Those uh, issues are less with protons. You are still irradiating healthy tissue, but you're just not doing it to the same extent. If you work out how much treatment you have to give to somebody who has been treated with radiotherapy throughout their life, it actually makes more sense to pay more money at the start for protons for some of those patients, and then, because you don't then have to spend that money throughout their life caring for them because of the side effects of the radiation therapy. So you have to be quite clear about where the advantages lie much more so with children than with adults. I think the younger you are, the more benefits you're, you're likely to see. Asher King is an interesting case. Now, you're asking that question of a physicist and not a clinician, so I'm going to give you my understanding as a physicist. Treating medulloblastoma is not just about the radiation. There's a whole process that you have to go through. So, first of all, you have to resect the tumor. You have to remove the tumor. Then you have to make sure that that cancer has not metastasized. So you need to take samples, I think, from the cerebrospinal fluid. And it takes a while for you to 
work out what the next stage of treatment is. And once you know that, it has to start very quickly. So there's a limited time frame where you have to deliver the right treatment. Now, if you take a young child who's in a very fragile condition and you say it's going to take a certain amount of time to take them from one country to another and then prepare them again for treatment, then there is the risk that everything starts again because after a certain period of time, that tumour can regrow. The other thing is that what they had at, I think it was Southampton where he was treated, uh, is you've got really good radio chemotherapy. So you need to do the multimodal treatment that I was talking about earlier. You need radiotherapy, chemotherapy, and surgery all combined. The advantage of delivering chemotherapy is it greatly reduces the chance of the cancer recurring. I believe that because he went abroad to Prague, he had the proton therapy, so what you would say is better radiotherapy, but he didn't have the chemotherapy. Now, I think the argument from Southampton was because of his health and because the time window is so narrow, it's not recommended to send him abroad. That's my understanding. Hi, um, I was just uh, surprised um, that you've still got a sort of 360 gantry and I wondered if you could just explain that to me because it seems to me that if you can control, you know, at what depth the, the protons are firing, then you should only need to move it up and down or left and right a little bit, that, that, that nozzle, to be able to cover the whole, you know, uh, 3D object. So why do you need to take the gantry all the way around? It's not about delivering dose to the tumour, it's about not delivering it to the healthy tissue. So the, the, an important thing to understand, with X-ray radiotherapy or proton therapy, the amount of dose you deliver to the tumour does not change. You deliver exactly the right amount to kill the tumour. It's the residual dose that you're delivering that you're concerned about. So now imagine that you've got a brain tumour and you've got the patient who's uh, set up on the couch from one direction, you've got a fixed beam line. You have one choice about which direction to bring the beam in through. If you could do it from both sides, now you've halved the dose distribution that's going through healthy tissue. If you can do it from multiple directions, then you have a further improvement in the dose that you're delivering to something you really don't want to damage. It may well be that if you have a single direction and you're fixed once you've built the machine, that there are certain areas that you would have to go through to deliver the dose to the tumour. So a good example is the optic chiasm, which is where the optic nerves cross over. Now that you absolutely have to avoid, because it's very radiosensitive. If you deliver too much dose, you go blind in both eyes. So you always try and avoid certain structures within the brain. By having a gantry, by having the 360-degree rotation, it allows you to deliver the optimal dose and minimise the dose to healthy tissue. There are centres where you have fixed beam lines. The clinical um, opinion after they've been treating with those, except for eye tumours where it's very easy to localise the head and bring the beam in from one direction, is you would always prefer to have a gantry. If you can deliver from multiple directions, it always gives you better treatment. Oh, so... Um, usually when objects collide with other objects, um, they gradually lose energy and slow down. So why, how come there's this Bragg peak um, where the most energy is given off at the end, whereas usually energy is lost gradually? It depends what you mean by gradually. So something that's travelling quickly 
so let's imagine a proton. Imagine the proton is traveling through and past the clouds of electrons that surround each one of the atoms in your body. The faster that proton is going, the more quickly it's going to go through that electron cloud. So the less chance it has to collide with one of those electrons. So you get fewer collisions. Now, as it starts to slow down, it's spending more time passing through the electron cloud around each atom, which means the chances of it making one of those collisions goes up. Now, if the chance goes up, then the chance of it losing a little bit of energy also goes up. So the slower it goes, the more collisions you get in a more compact volume. And that means that as it slows down, the energy loss goes up, so it slows down, so the energy loss goes up, so it slows down until it's got no energy left. So it's something like the inverse square of the velocity as the velocity goes down, the energy loss shoots right the way up. But it's really the number of collisions that it's making with the electrons in the atoms. I just wonder why you don't, instead of building a big gantry and doing it all complicated, if it's just a two-meter in circumference accelerator, why don't you just move the accelerator? Or even better, why don't you just move the patient? Patients are easy to move and locate and move them. That's a very big assumption. <laughs> and actually, I don't mean to sound quite as sarcastic as I did. That's, that's the key. Um, there is a design of proton therapy facility uh, from a company called Mevion in the US where they mount the accelerator, they mount the cyclotron to the gantry and rotate that around the patient. Now there, it's actually called a synchrocyclotron, it's even smaller, it's about a meter in diameter. It has to be small enough that you can actually support it uh, around that structure. You have to think you've got this enormous weight Half the weight of the gantry is actually the counterweight. So you've got all the magnets on one side and you've got this big counterweight on the other side because if you tilt the gantry by 90 degrees, it's going to fall over unless you've got something to, to balance the weight. If you put the accelerator on one side, you've got all that weight that's offset. So if you look at the Mevion designs, they've got these two enormous arms that rotate the accelerator around the patient. The other thing is the biggest radiation source in the entire facility is that accelerator. So you have to keep it shielded in about four metres of concrete in order that you don't get irradiated by the accelerator itself. So you really want the highest radiation source as far away from the patients as possible, except for the bit that you can control. So you do all your radiation in the concrete bunker surrounding the accelerator and then deliver the beam in a clean way. Now, the thing about moving the patient around the beam rather than the beam around the patient, the way that you do treatment planning is you take a CT scan, so an X-ray scan, and you take five millimeter slices in all directions. That then gives you uh, something similar to the MRI scans that you saw of, of Snowy. So you can see where the tumor is. In order to know what to treat, the first thing you have to say is, where is the tumor? And that's done by hand. So an oncologist will look at each slice in the CT scan and mark out by hand where the tumor is. The next thing you have to do is to say, well, I can see some part of the tumour, but I know, because of my expertise, that there is likely to be a little bit of spread. So then you have to enlarge that area out. The next thing you do is say, these are organs at risk. Do not treat these. The next thing you have to do is to work out, if the patient moves slightly, how much do I then have to enlarge that, that volume? So that's done every single one of those slices in all three directions. And from that, you then work out your treatment plan, where you're bringing the beams in. You then set the patient up in exactly the same position as you've done the imaging for. 
If you move the patient, your internal anatomy is kind of like gelatin. So imagine that I am rotating you by 90 degrees. Your entire body has just slopped over to one side. So what do you do? Do you guess and say with this high precision brag peak, it's probably in the right place? Yeah, I don't think most patients would sign up to that. What you would actually have to do is you reposition the patient, you re-image, and then you go through the treatment plan. So between moving the patient from one position to another, that's about 10 days. So because we can't be bothered to get the technology smaller and more compact, and you hear it from physicists all the time of, move the patient around the beam, it's easier that way. No, no. No, it's the treatment planning that you have to do. That's the, that's the difficulty. So just to follow on from that, if you, were then, if you were treating stomach cancer and you had lunch or you didn't have lunch, would that actually change the internal... Because your body changes all the time. So yep. like, does that stuff... Yeah, and you, 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 see it with, you see it with conventional radiotherapy. So, for example, if you've got a cold, then the absorption of all the fluid in your head changes what the dose deposition is going to be. Uh, if, as you get treated, you actually tend to lose weight. Um, or... Some people will gain weight. You have to take that into account as you're treating. So if it looks like a patient's anatomy has changed too much, then you have to re-image and re-plan when you're in the, the, the middle of, of treatment. Now, previously, you would just do the treatment plan at the start and then treat with, with x-rays. But now you're starting to do more replanning as you go through because of those anatomical changes. You hope for a start that the tumour is going to shrink. But then that has an impact, particularly for proton therapy, on what the dose deposition is going to be. Because if you've got a lung tumour and you thought the tumour is a certain size, it's now half the size, you're now shooting the beam right the way through because it's not stopping in the tumour and it's going into something you don't want to hit. Thank you for a brilliant uh, exposition of the subject. What I would like to know from you is how universal are these proton therapy centres are? I mean, we know about Manchester and we know now about London and we know Heidelberg. What about the rest of Europe? There are about 60, I think, that are open around the world. Um, and it's a pretty much even split, one third a pot between the US, Europe and uh, Japan. Those are the three main um, places. Uh, it's still very definitely... Uh, much less common than conventional X-ray radiotherapy. I mean, the cost and the size is always the issue. Heidelberg is absolutely vast. I think Heidelberg costs something like one and a half billion euros. And that's one gantry and one treatment room with that gantry, and then you have two other fixed beam lines. You compare that to a conventional X-ray treatment room, which I think is about five million, for the entire treatment room. So you go, there's no point in building that. The cost is, is ridiculous. But for some cases, then it's actually going to be beneficial. So it's always that trade-off. It's not particularly old. It's not nearly as mature as X-ray radiotherapy. So we know less. What we know is physics. What we understand is this dose localization. But how we deliver the treatment, that we're still learning about. We know much more about how to do that with, with X-rays. Under no circumstances would I say it's universal. I would say it's still a few isolated centres. But it's growing, it's starting to pick up around the world. The issue is always cost. The cost needs to come down in order for the treatment to become more widespread. But also, 
X-ray radiotherapy does not stand still. It's not like, okay, we've got X-rays and then we're fine. The number of advances that have been made in the past 10, 20 years going from fixed beam stereotactic to this now conformal 360-degree dose, it's really, really good. So my opinion is that it won't ever supplant it, that you will then get all, you'll have all these tools in your toolbox that will, that will do the job. Um, I think X-ray radiotherapy is also going to get, get cheaper. So universal... No, I wouldn't have thought so, but it's part of your armory, it's part of your toolkit. You sort of half answered my question already, um, but I was also wondering if you think that there are potentially other um, uses for this, not necessarily in destructive techniques, but if you could see this going into um, other forms of surgery, um, like, I don't know, to, to deal with other problems. Or like if, it, if you can only see it being used um, in cancer treatment? Uh, right now, I would be surprised if you would use it for other conditions because it's big and it's expensive and you have as many patients as you can fill the, the, the treatment rooms with. So it's quite targeted, it's quite specific. The thing is, is cancer is far more prevalent than pretty much anything else. So... Uh, if you take it away from cancer treatment and give it to something else, you're taking it away from the thing that you have to treat most often. So that's why I would have thought it would be unlikely. What is the long-term implications? Are there sequelae that can happen, or are they predisposed to other type of malignancies, having undergone this modality since it's relatively new? Uh, you mean as opposed to other ways of Correct. treating cancer? The if you were just getting, you know, X-ray... XRT, obviously, they would be predisposed long-term for all the, the X-rays they're taking in, and given that this is a new modality, are there any longitudinal studies on that? Well, because it's quite new, I mean, the difficulty is, is if you're doing a patient study, you have to do the long-term follow-up, right. and that gets quite difficult. I mean, do you have any ideas at this point in time, malignancies that they might be predisposed to? That are specific to proton yes. therapy? Not as far as I'm aware. Because you're, you're doing the same thing. You're damaging healthy cells that give you these secondary cancers. So the damage mechanism is similar. At least that's the evidence that we have at the moment. It's just more focused. It's gotcha. tighter. So the... The studies are, I mean, the studies are always ongoing. Clinical trials are always ongoing. Um, really um, proper clinical trials are quite new, I think, in proton therapy because the number of centers has been so small. To do those widespread clinical trials has been really difficult. You simply haven't had the number of patients, and then you have to do long-term right. long follow-up. Um, my understanding is that essentially you're looking for the same things, but they're just less pronounced with protons because of the conformal uh, dose distribution. You do see certain things in protons that you don't see so pronounced in um, x-rays, but in the short term. So you, you get more skin reddening with protons than you do with x-rays. That may well be because this, the, the photon peak is a few centimeters into the body, so the skin dose is slightly lower. But that's not a long-term thing. That's a, that's a short-term thing. Um, so, wh where do you see cancer treatment heading? So, we've, you know, we've got radiotherapy and, and proton beam therapy, but there's nanotechnology and, and, you know, sort of getting into very small miniaturization sort of from the internal, internal therapy. Um, 
and then also gene editing and, and, and that sort of aspect of it. Where do, you, where do you see things moving? All of the above, and that sounds like I'm cheating you by not giving you a straight <laughs> answer. For me, the most exciting thing at the moment is immunotherapy. And it's something that I've thought for a while, and when I say I've thought of it for a while, I'm not alone. There are lots of much smarter people who are actually doing something about it rather than just sitting and thinking about it. Your immune system has 500 million years of thereabouts of evolution dedicated to fighting off things that are unhealthy, foreign invaders. And as I said earlier, the difficulty is the fact that there is no recognition from the immune system of cells in your own body. It's kind of the opposite to having a transplant, where if you have a transplant, your body tries to reject it because it says, this is foreign, even though, yeah, but I need a heart. Um, stimulating the immune system, stimulating this incredible engine that we already have within us to do that job for us, that to me is part of the key. But I don't think it's ever going to be isolated. I don't think it's a one-shot deal. When people say, is there a cure for cancer? Yeah, well, there's lots of treatments for it. The best cure for cancer is don't smoke, for example. You, you looking after your health, that is a far better way of preventing cancer. Don't leave it up to the medics. Look after yourself. Look after your own body. Don't take in the carcinogens. That's the really the most important thing. And we're starting to understand how our bodies work. We're starting to understand the effects of the things that we put in, the effects of our lifestyle. So I haven't even talked about treatment at that point. That's all of the preemptive things. Um, I remember having a conversation with a friend of a friend who was sitting in a pub, uh, pub chuffing away on a cigarette and saying, when's the point at which I don't have to care about how much I smoke that you're going to be able to fix me of cancer? Like, no. The whole point is that you're a contributor to society, that at the moment you're, all you're thinking about is I want to keep taking my poison. Um, that's part of it, is our understanding of how we live so that our body does not accrue the damage that then leads to cancer. But on the other side, on the treatment side, you have several forms of radiotherapy. You have gene therapy, you have immunotherapy, all of the understanding of the apoptosis mechanism. I mean, that's another fascinating thing, the fact that you are waiting for cancer cells to do the job for you. You're damaging them just enough so that apoptosis kicks in and the cancer cell self-destructs. If you irradiate a cancer cell with enough radiation to kill the cell, you kill the patient. So you're still just doing a little bit and a little bit and a little bit. Why are some cancers radioresistant? Well, part of the reason is that the apoptosis mechanism is blocked. There are enzymes. The, the um, organ becomes flooded with all of these enzymes that block the apoptosis signaling pathway. Now get in the way of those, and suddenly you resensitize the cancer to any of the forms of treatment. Now maybe you add in a little bit of x-rays to give you your, the, the dose that you want to the tumor. Now you add in a little bit of carbon, which gets the immune system's attention. Now you add in some of the immunotherapy that says that I give the immune system a boost. Now I add in some apoptosis um, stimulating chemicals and I get my chemotherapy right. It's going to be multimodal. The most important treatment mode is you looking after yourself. I think that's a wonderful point to stop at. Look after yourselves. Thank you.
That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Please leave us a rating and review to let us know what you think and to help other people discover the podcast. If you want more like this, head to rigb.org to book tickets for all our upcoming talks and live streams from more amazing speakers.